Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face-Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high-energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome in to the latest installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. And as always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, how are you doing today? Great. How are you, Joe? Doing well, doing well. Also joined by Rich Lenkoff of Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, how's it going? Good, Joe. Good to see you. Good to see you and the additional facial hair, as always. Yes. Always a welcome, a welcome guest. Thank, thank you very much. More on that later. Uh, let's jump into the city of Highland Park still recovering after the 4th of July shootings and here to comment on the Floyd laws after which is Democratic Representative Kathleen Willis of the 77th District. Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joe. We appreciate it. So uh, in 2019, Representative, uh, the shooting suspect applied for his Illinois firearm owner's identification card, also known as FOID. Uh, Police visited him in Highland Park after they learned of a reported suicide attempt. Uh, Also domestic violence calls to his family home. There was also a police report that the alleged shooter had threatened people at a house, at his house. Uh, They discovered that he had made threats that he was going to, quote, kill everyone. They also discovered, as it's now widely been reported, 16 knives in a tin can lunchbox, samurai-style sword, a dagger also in his bedroom closet. Uh, He admitted to drug use. He said he had been depressed on the Monday prior to that visit. Uh, This was apparently alarming enough for Highland Park police to alert state authorities a few months later when he applied for his FOID card. Unfortunately, those episodes were not enough, obviously, to keep him from acquiring the high-powered rifle he allegedly used to kill seven people in Highland Park and injuring many more uh, on Independence Day just a few days ago. Uh, State Police Director Brendan Kelly said last week that the Highland Park report did not meet the legal standard for the state police to officially declare Cremo, the shooter, alleged shooter, a threat. So... Simply put, what went wrong here? Well, I I think I hate to be finger pointing after the fact, but I really think a lot of this has to fall onto the family. The family did not follow through. Um, They had we had already passed the red flag law at that time, which would have allowed the family to um, put some holdings in there. Now, at the time when these um, concerns came through with the um, death threats to the other family members, this young man did not have a FOID card. Um, So he didn't have anything that they could have taken away. The parents, the father said the, the knives were his, that they were not the son's knives, so they weren't the weapons of the son. So that sort of um, distanced the, the, the young man from that. The family refused to follow through to file a complaint um, to have any court things going through. And then I think the worst atrocity in this all is that the father, within six months afterwards, signed as a guardian for this young man to get a FOID card. Um, All of those things combined set up this tragedy. 
Um, when there is not an official um, complaint or something filed through, the police can put in a concern, but it really ties their hands. And as um, the director of the state police said, without a full follow through, it sort of leaves them wondering. So, Representative, in the wake of the 2019 shooting at the Henry Pratt Company warehouse in Aurora, where a background check for Gary Martin's Floyd application failed to catch uh, his 1995 felony conviction in Mississippi for stabbing and beating his girlfriend with a baseball bat, you co-authored legislation that was described as ensuring that we only have the correct people owning firearms. Can you tell us what some of the highlights were of that initial piece of legislation? Well, the most important part of that was requiring fingerprints to be submitted. Um, That would prevent anybody from lying on their FOID application, any concerns of common names. Um, You know, if you're John Smith, there are thousands, if not a million John Smiths throughout. So fingerprints wouldn't lie, and it would hopefully give us a better background on that. In addition, it also set up a better system to get information into the databases, the, the um, police databases, for sharing their local information. Not only their local, state, but federal information should be much easier shared than it has been in the past. Those were the biggest components of that. It also added an additional fee to the um, firearm identification card so that that additional money could go into a task force that would simply be required to do the revocations. Oftentimes the revocations are not done because it's a matter of it's not their top priority. They have other things. Many local law enforcement are minimally manned and they don't have the time and the ability. And that is a dangerous situation sometimes going and asking somebody that shouldn't have a gun to turn over their gun to law enforcement. So representative, that piece of legislation after Henry Pratt uh, started off looking like one thing and containing a lot of measures. And like we see with a pattern, both locally, federally, uh, that's changed, right? So tell us what the bill that J.B. Pritzker eventually signed into law in 2021 looked like and, you know, how that process watered down your efforts to get your head and hands around this issue. So the main things that were no longer in the bill was the fingerprinting. That was the huge thing that got pulled out. It made fingerprinting permissive, which we've always had fingerprinting permissive for concealed carry applications. So it did water that down quite a bit. It also went and did not have an increased fee for the firearms card, nor um, we originally, the original original bill had it for a reduced amount of time as opposed to 10 years. It was only going to be for five years before you had to be the renewal. It stayed at the $10 and the 10 years. Um, Without that additional money, it uh, really didn't give the state police all the resources they needed to set up these task force that they need to. But it did the, the bill that got signed increased universal background checks. It did, um, put in additional funding for the database upgrades and it did direct the director of the state police to try to put together these task force. Um, I haven't heard 
if they've been successful without the additional funds yet, though? So obviously, this is all you know um, much more relevant today. In many ways, not that the tragedies weren't uh, incredibly impactful, leading to your legislation. But listen, we're we're ten days away, a little more than that, from uh, one of the biggest tragedies we've seen, certainly here locally. So, how do you think, if any effects? How do you think Highland Park will affect legislation going forward, if anything? I mean, listen, we're in the middle of a of a gubernatorial race. We already see the Republican nominee saying, forget strengthening Floyd. Let's get let's do away with Floyd entirely. Right. We see it at the national level with the bill uh, that that the president recently signed and how that was, you know, not as strong as many would like. So the short the short question is, I mean, do you think Highland Park is going to change anything? We see this after every shooting where there's, you know, this well of emotion, of course, and desire and will to change. And then unfortunately, things don't seem to change. Yeah, I would hope that this might move us forward to change. And I'm optimistic. I think every time we do get some change, we don't get um, as large a change as we want to see. What I'm hearing from my fellow legislators right now is a lot of push on banning assault style weapons. Um, or reducing the size of um, ammunition magazines down to 10, as opposed to this young man had 330 uh, clips that he used. So if we bring it down to 10, you know, there's going to be a break in between. Those are things. And I also just saw today that actually one of my Republican counterparts is put in a piece of legislation to make uh, parents more accountable when or the guardians more accountable when they sign for those void applications for under age 21. And the final piece I've seen that's come through is Representative Conroy has put uh, together a piece of legislation. It's called a white flag law that will put a lot more scrutiny on young people that are suffering from mental health issues um, when they apply for a FOID card so that we have a much more thorough background check on that, possibly delaying before they can actually have a FOID card or or access to guns. Last question here on Legal Faceoff, Representative, we really appreciate your time is I don't know if you saw, I'm sure you did. There was a really interesting piece in the New York Times on Sunday about the difference between gun laws in, in, in this country, in the United States, and Japan, where we just saw last you know week the former prime minister assassinated with a, with a homemade weapon. Um, and the point of the article is that uh, in countries that have much stronger gun laws like Japan, uh, these instances are incredibly rare. And that's why it's so surprising that this shooter in Japan was able to successfully assassinate the former prime minister, because the odds of that happening in a country like Japan are so remote, given they have to literally put together a gun out of parts and the chance of that being successful are so tiny. So, again, this is a question that we all deal with that no one really has the answer to. When you compare those, you know, a system like Japan, where it's almost impossible to get a gun in the United States, where it's incredibly easy Will it ever change and and will your job ever become easier when trying to legislate gun control, given how strong the supporters of gun rights are in our country when compared to other countries? It's a really long question, but I, I think you understand the gist of it. Right. Well, I think one of the biggest challenges we have um, as a state legislator is we have very good laws in the state of Illinois and we continue to try to make them stricter. But until we have federal laws, 
that will require our neighboring states to follow those same rules. It makes it very difficult. So I do agree that I think our biggest challenge in the United States is access to firearms. Um, And we need to recognize that there is a way to have access to firearms, still respect the Second Amendment, but make sure that everybody doesn't have them. There is no need for a semi-automatic weapon in your home um, other than you get a thrill by shooting it. You're not using it for hunting. You're not using it to safeguard your house. Why do we have to have that there? I think taking that out of the picture can still allow the Second Amendment to exist, but reduce our mass shootings that we're seeing in the United States. Again, that's Democratic Representative Kathleen Willis of the 77th District. Representative, thank you so much for the insight. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me today. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. As we record this Legal Faceoff podcast on Friday, the Brittany Griner trials have begun. So with that, we welcome in Jameson Firestone, managing partner of FD Advisory and former law firm operator over in Moscow. He joins us from across the pond. Jameson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Jameson, so yeah, as Joe mentioned, the trial resumed yesterday uh, after Brittany Greer, uh, Griner pled guilty to drug charges, of course, stemming from her February arrest at an airport near Moscow. Uh, you know the Russian uh, legal system well. Why did she plead guilty? That's something that a lot of us on this side are, are trying to figure out. We all heard, of course, that it's a show trial, but explain to us uh, what about the Russian legal system require or, or led her to plead guilty at this early stage? Okay, well, two things that the Russians are saying that she had two vape part cartridges with cannabis oil in them, and she may have had them. So not to admit that would, of course, um, anger the court if it was true. And the other is for leniency. The judge has some leeway in what in what the judge can do. And so um, by saying that she broke the law and that she didn't mean to break the law, she's, um, you know, basically uh, being honest and and hope and hope, hoping to get leniency. So, Jameson, given that she pled guilty, why is the trial still proceeding? Well, because what they do in Russia is even if you plead guilty, they have to read in all the evidence. And when I mean all the evidence, I mean all the evidence like they have to actually say we sent the vials to a, a laboratory and they read the laboratory test paper into the into the record and the and what the investigators found so it just takes forever and and while that goes on she's sitting in a cage during these uh proceedings 
I know. I think you've been quoted even saying what uh, the conviction rate is like 99 percent, something like that, something incredibly high. So, uh, of course, all the reports from this trial describe it as a show trial and, of course, as a pretext to possibly result in a prisoner swap uh, between the countries. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let, let's be clear. If she had the cartridges on her, even though they're perfectly legal in many states in the United States, it would be a criminal offense in Russia and they would arrest anybody. Um, but what, what's happening here is the United States has gotten involved um, and they've declared that she's wrongfully detained, which means that we treat it as a hostage situation. We actually are going to negotiate for her release. And, and so she, in a way, has an advantage here in that the U.S. government is getting involved and a disadvantage in that the Russian government knows she can be traded and is worth something. So it's kind of in a, it's kind of like the, there's an advantage for the Russians to give her extra time so they can trade her later. But most Americans uh, probably wouldn't have the U.S. government step in for them. Um, but here, you know, clearly an accident and she's very famous and very successful uh, and very admirable. So, Jameson, besides like literally, you know, being present in a cage and besides what you told us, how vape cartridges would not result in arrest in this country and they, they do in Russia um, and that, you know, you plead guilty and then still progress with the trial. Those are some examples of the differences. What are a couple other examples that our listeners and viewers might not know about how a Russian trial and maybe Russian prisons differ from what they are in North America? Well, the first thing is that they're, they're really primitive. Um, I mean, your, your basic needs are not no toilet paper, over, huge overcrowding in the cells. It's, it's uncomfortable in, in detention. Um, and, and Russians also, when they sentence you, tend to sentence you to a penal colony. So it's, it's like a whole little village that's encased as, as a prison village, so to speak. Um, and, and so that's very different than what, what goes on in, in America. But, and the conviction rate. To be accused is generally to be convicted. It's 99% plus. So, Jameson, against that backdrop um, and knowing that gay people routinely face discrimination in Russia, what does life look like in jail and in the criminal justice system for Griner, who is both gay as well as black? Yeah, look, that could be a real problem. Um, it is not uh, it's, it's really not easy for gays in, in Russia right now and certainly not in the prison system. Um, if it were a men's prison, it would really be terrible. Um, and I'm not saying it'll be any easier in, in a woman's prison. But I mean, these are reasons why the United States should be focused on getting her out of there, because her experience might be worse even than you know, somebody normal who wasn't. Um, yeah, did, didn't I mean? Who wasn't a minority? Basically, it's a double minority. I mean, Ray, Russia is uh, unkind uh, to gays, and and it's unfortunately a country where people are openly racist. Last question, uh, Jameson is: Is what's your prediction? I mean, how long does she spend in jail? This is the million dollar question you've been asked many times, of course. And you know, does she come over back home uh, as a result of a, a prisoner swap? I, mean, I think she will. Look, first of all, there, there was another case almost exactly like this in 2019. This Israeli woman uh, was changing planes in, Mo in Moscow. She, she didn't even come into the country, technically. She was a transit passenger, small amount of marijuana, and they found it in her bags while the bags were automatically going from one plane to another. They gave her seven and a half years. Um, but the 
she was Israeli and the Israelis were trying to negotiate some things with the Russians where each country needed something from each other. So the as part of the deal of what the Israelis needed from the Russians, and the Russians needed from them, they freed her. I, I imagine that that is what would happen with, with Brittany, that, that she would be traded um, as soon as the, the governments are willing to work out you know, who to trade for. I know we promised that's the last question, but I got to ask just another couple of seconds because it's really fascinating. You operated, as Joe mentioned, a law firm in Moscow for, what, 18 years. Were you concerned? I mean, did, I guess you sort of learned the system and learned how to operate, obviously, successfully. But if it was me, I'd be concerned every day that something like this would happen over something that in this country would be innocuous that who knows when you could get snatched up. I mean, that's sort of the cliche about Russia, but apparently it's true. It, it is true. and. Um I don't I do not go back to Russia anymore because I do human rights work and anti-corruption work. And that would end me in in jail. Most of my friends have had to flee Russia for the same reasons. If you're an anti-corruption activist or a or a gay rights activist or human rights activist, your days that you either go to jail or you flee. And that's Jameson Firestone, managing partner of FD Advisory. Jameson, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Continuing on the Legal Faceoff podcast, we move to the topic of religion in school. And we've got Rebecca Glenberg, Senior Supervising Attorney at the Roger Baldwin Foundation of ACLU, Illinois. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So, Rebecca, historically, the Supreme Court banned school-sponsored prayer in public schools, and lower courts have generally forbidden public school employees from openly praying in the workplace. But a couple of weeks ago, The Supreme Court, in its decision, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, ruled that a school board in Washington state violated a coach's rights by not renewing his contract after he had ignored district officials' directive to stop kneeling in silent prayer on the field's 50-yard line after games. Kennedy claimed that the board had violated his First Amendment rights to freedom of speech, as well as his freedom of religion. And the Supreme Court's majority agreed 6-3. Can you tell us more about this case and the court's decision? Well, the court's decision um, is quite disturbing in the way it treated this case in contrast to all of the other cases dealing with religion in school that the court has heard. Um, First of all, um, when you read the majority opinion and the dissenting opinion, you can see that um, the um, majority, in order to reach its conclusion, left out a lot of uh, important facts, um, such as this coach's history of praying on the field with students and really incorporating the religious exercise into this official school function. Um, And a a second way that this was um, really, um, really disturbing was that the court really brushed off the religious liberty interests of the students at this school. Um, So the court has previously been very sensitive to the fact that that students, minors are um, particularly susceptible to things like um, peer pressure, um, indoctrination, um, and um, you know other kinds of coercive pressures. 
um, that could lead them to feel like either they have to participate in a prayer like that or that um, they are not really a member of the school as the school views itself. Or in this case, that they're not really the right kind of member of this football team. They are um, they're out of place here in this football team. They're not um, what a football player is supposed to be like at this school. Um, and um, um, I not think necessarily that that was the particular thought process of any of these students, but it is very often the way that a student of a minority religion or of no religion at all um, feels about prayer being incorporated into their daily life um, at a school. And that is why the court has previously been so solicitous in the school context to the students' rights. And it's what the court really ignored in this case. All right. So the idea is if you're a Jewish student or an atheist or an agnostic and you're not in this prayer circle at the 50-yard line, maybe you're not being the victim of overt racism or religious uh, disparity, but you certainly feel different is, is what is what you're saying. And to that point, in the majority, I guess in contrary to that point, the majority, Rebecca said that um, uh, they interpreted the uh, Establishment Clause to not require the government to single out private religious, private religious speech for a special favor or disfavor, but that the con and I'll just read the quote: "The Constitution and the best of our traditions counsel mutual respect and tolerance, not censorship and suppression for religious and non-religious views alike." Why is that interpretation wrong, in your opinion? Well, I think you know, in general, that is um, perfectly correct. Um, but like any constitutional right, um, the um, the application of the um, religious liberties set forth in the First Amendment are highly sensitive to context, as the court has always remember, has always um, indicated previously. Um, and so you look carefully at what's going on here and what the actual effect is, um, rather than viewing this completely in the abstract. Um, now, um, I, I think it's it's really um, misleading to characterize um, the potential reactions of um, minority students or their parents as intolerant or disrespectful. Um, I think that most people, regardless of their um, religious beliefs or their personal practices, are perfectly happy, for example, to go to a friend's wedding who is uh, a different religion and whose um, religion is completely incorporated into the ceremony. Um, and the reason that they aren't upset or offended about that happening is that they understand that this um, ceremony is all about their friend and their friend's um, new spouse. It's not about them. And they want to see their friend celebrating their union in the way that um, is most meaningful to them and they're delighted to participate. Um, now, compare that to say a prayer in a government setting, um, let alone a school setting, where um, 
they um, a, a government um, event is not supposed to be about the government per se. Um, it's supposed to be about all of us, um, everyone who is a part of whatever community is within that event. Here, you know, we have a football team. We also have a broader school community that is sitting in the stands. Um, so. Um, the message when the prayer occurs in those circumstances um, is this is um, this is what we do here. You know, um, this is the right way to um, mark this occasion. Um, and um, it's not about um, whether you tolerate um, religious speech or prayer generally. It's whether um, it's right for any person to um, be confronted with the government incorporating religion into an official event. So, Rebecca, um, let's talk about the dissent for a second, as well as the going forward after this decision. So, Justices Sotomayor, Breyer, and Kagan penned a lengthy dissent, which seems to have happened quite a bit with some of the cases this past term. Um, and they expressed their dissatisfaction with what they framed as the court paying almost exclusive attention to the free exercise clauses protection for individual religious exercise while giving short shrift to the establishment clause. And this was characterized, this decision was characterized as this as the very dismantling of the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. Taking sort of a high-level perspective on this, what does this decision do to the Establishment Clause, both when you look at it in the context of the court's others, other decisions of this term, including um, the, the one regarding religious schools not being singled out for exclusion from public funding, as well as some of the other significant landmark decisions like Dobbs? In, in a minute or so, if you could help us wrap up the discussion by focusing on that, that would be terrific. Sure. Um, you know, whether you call it the Establishment Clause or the Wall of Separation, um, really, um, this part of the First Amendment is supposed to work hand in hand um, with, um, with the Free Exercise Clause, protecting the free exercise of religion. And um, the majority here says that. Um, but in, what they're doing, in fact, is sort of privileging the um, free exercise part over the interests of anyone um, who may object to this kind of government religion. Um, and um, when you think about it fully, both sides of the First Amendment are about protecting people's freedom of conscience and religious liberty. Um, and the Establishment Clause, as we've always understood it before, is about um, ensuring that people's religious liberty isn't compromised by um, this sort of government um, coercion or exclusion um, by means of religious exercise. Uh, last question really quick, Rebecca. Do you think that this case uh, is, or these cases involving religious liberty are an example of an emboldened conservative uh, wing of the Supreme Court as exhibited as Tina mentioned by the Dobbs case and the EPA case? Uh, or do you think these cases are limited to sort of the facts of, of this and maybe we'll see a different 
conservative wing in the next term as far-fetched as that may be. Yeah, I think this is um, very much of a piece with the pattern we've seen with the court um, discarding longstanding precedent, indeed scoffing at longstanding precedent, and um, incorporating a completely radically different interpretation of all kinds of constitutional provisions in these cases. Again, that's Rebecca Glenberg, Senior Supervising Attorney at the Roger Baldwin Foundation of ACLU, Illinois. Rebecca, thank you so much for the time. Thank you. I appreciate the conversation. It's time for the legal grab bag here on Legal Face Off. Let's get to our two guests. And we start with Corey Toysh, the Director of Operations at S1 Medical Service First Medical. You might also recognize her as Race Car Bed Mom from Instagram. Corey, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And along with David Sussler, who's more than a friend of the podcast, we are trying to tally up all the times that he's been here on Legal Grab Bag, Associate General Counsel at National Material LP. And obviously contributor at Chicago Lawyer Magazine. What's up, Sus? How are you? Glad to be here. Good. Great to have you as always. Uh, Rich, let's get right into it. And we'll start with Louisiana abortion laws. Well, Louisiana and, and, and many other states are in the news, Joe, since uh, the Dobbs decision, of course, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. So not unexpectedly, a lot of states, now that the court has ruled, that states can enact their own legislation in dealing with whether you can terminate a pregnancy, states are doing that. And we're seeing a flurry of lawsuits, not just in Louisiana, but many states, Texas, Indiana, Ohio, are joining Louisiana in passing laws that are governing your a woman's access to uh, abortion in their state. Uh, the laws, the lawsuits range from um trying to overturn trigger laws, which were, you know, triggered by the Dobbs decision, which meant that automatically abortion would be uh, outlawed to um, other laws like in Texas, trying to make it illegal for district attorneys to fail to enforce those laws. So in the wake of Dobbs, there was a whole series of local prosecutors who said, despite what the Supreme Court did, we're not going to enforce some of those laws. So there's conservative states doing that. Um, there's, of course, the widely now reported Ohio situation. Has everyone heard this story? The uh, 10-year-old who uh, was a rape victim that got pregnant. Uh, initially, it was considered a hoax, but now it's been confirmed. And the question surrounding that story is whether she should be allowed to terminate her pregnancy under a um, danger to health situation, right? Exception to uh, rape laws. Uh, the idea there is that inherently a 10-year-old having a baby is a massive health risk. So I guess the question for the, for the, for the room is, uh, is it appropriate, no matter how you feel on the Roe v. Wade overturning, as a legal issue, is it appropriate for the states to be to be you know, dealing with this issue on a case-by-case basis through lawsuits, is that proper? Not unexpected, but that's sort of how it's working out and probably consistent with what the, the court intended. Tina, what are your thoughts on this crossword puzzle of lawsuits going on across the nation? Well, I think that at least for now, this is the only way that we can really address the situation in light of Dobbs. 
Um, so I think that we're just going to continue to see a steady stream of these types of cases. And, you know, as a corollary to all of this, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg because there's also a plethora of employee of employment issues that are going to also have to be decided. And you've got, you know, states now threatening, like I'm sure you may have seen the headlines about Texas and Sibley Austin um, and, you know, threats about if you do certain things or offer certain things with respect to your employees. Um, and, you know, obviously there are certain law firms that whether it's the Dobbs decision itself or providing assurances to an, its employees, I mean, there's been a lot of that um, that's happened in the wake of Dobbs. So I think it's a huge jigsaw puzzle. It's more than three-dimensional. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Corey, you work with law firms all the time. Uh, you know, the one thing we could be certain of as evidenced by all of these lawsuits is uh, it creates a whole new class of lawsuits. It's going to keep uh, court dockets busy. And the fact that you have to rule expediently, expeditiously, uh, because of the gravity of these uh, issues, right? I mean, there are women literally waiting to get abortions, so courts are, are moving fairly quickly. Yeah, I think it's, I think Christina said it well, it's just going to create this spider web of problems, too, especially if you look cross-jurisdictionally and you're looking in, you know, different perspectives of the different states. We've, we've just thickened the problem far more than you know, just overturning a, a age-old regulation and, you know, backing up the courts is going to do no other good across our other litigation perspectives. So it, it feels like a responsible perspective in a way of, hey, each state has their own rights to, to, to deem their state mandates, but irresponsible in the sense of the pressure we're putting on the courts by putting on a time frame and expecting these decisions to happen fast in a very unchartered territory. Yeah, that's interesting. And David, you uh, are inside counsel and, of course, co-author of the Inside Out column with Tina for, for many years. Excellent column. Uh, what's your perspective on how corporations are dealing with this? Because we've seen uh, lots of companies come out in the wake of Dobbs um, and they have programs and policies uh, whereas, for example, they will provide support, they will provide resources to employees who might not otherwise be able to travel to states where abortion is legal. Not only are you inside counsel, but you're very involved and have been for years with other general counsels. So sort of what's your take from that perspective? You, you know, it's, it's a good question. And obviously, to a large extent, all I know is what I read in the news, like everybody else, and a lot of companies, especially well-known brands, are beginning to take steps to reassure their employees they will provide benefits for their employees who want to get abortion-related medical care. Um, it's also interesting, if you think about what the Supreme Court's been doing, You could this could implicate Citizens United, which was a campaign financing case, of course, but it said corporations are people. So corporations have free speech rights. So how are you going to limit the corporation's rights to uh, offer their employees the benefits of their choosing. It, it just adds to the spider web of litigation. You know, it's there's that saying, hard facts make bad law. You've got a lot of really hard facts that are involved with this situation that I think the Supreme Court majority and the majority of people just don't think about. 
So we're facing, unless, unless a new court overturns the Dobbs decision, we're facing decades of awful litigation mm-hmm. on all fronts. Rich, an online petition is seeking the impeachment of Justice Thomas, and it's starting to gain some steam. Yeah, I mean, obviously related to our first topic, uh, Tina, um, we're seeing huge protests continued uh, by people who are not only happy with the conservative majority's decision overturning Roe, but in a whole series of decisions, right? We talked earlier with our guests about uh, religious liberty that, you know, in any other term, Tina, that would be like one of the most groundbreaking decisions uh, ever, but uh, it's, you know, secondary to Dobbs. Um, So people are protesting. We've seen uh, widely reported uh, examples of protests, not just outside the court, but outside justices' homes. Uh, as Joe mentioned, we're seeing a petition. I think uh, I think you mentioned it was 1.2 million signatures uh, to impeach Clarence Thomas. You know, I'm not so sure what the basis of impeaching Clarence Thomas would be. I think it's an interesting legal discussion to discuss, to analyze whether AOC's theory that you should impeach justices who lied at their confirmation hearings. That's a different story. I think that's an interesting argument because, you know, the most recent appointees, the three that Trump put on there, uh, they all said in different ways that uh, Roe was established precedent. So is there an argument that they lied at their confirmation hearings and they should be impeached? I think that's a worthy discussion. Thomas, you know, that's a different that's a different issue. I, I'm not sure there's much grounds there. But what's interesting to me and a little humorous story is uh, Brett Kavanaugh, one of the members of the majority and one of the Trump appointees was at dinner at Morton's. In Washington, one of our favorite restaurants here in, in Chicago, but he was at the D.C. Uh, uh, version, Tina, and um, he was, of course, uh, protested inside the restaurant, confronted and had to leave quickly. And, you know, noted legal theorist Morton's of uh, D.C. said that uh, politics should not trample the freedom at play of the right to congregate and eat dinner. There's a time and place for everything. Now, I've scoured the Constitution. We've been doing this show for eight years. We've had, you know, some of the greatest constitutional lawyers on the planet. I don't know. Help me out. Show me where the right to uh, eat steak is embedded in the Constitution. Maybe that's in the penumbra that uh, was just overturned, but I don't know. Do we have a right to eat steak? The constructionists. Yeah. (laughs) But no, I mean, to your point, um, I think that the Supreme Court justices need to expect that when decisions like this come down that are this explosive, and I would say vitriolic in many ways, that they will expect. Now, I don't believe in endangering their safety. So let's you know just sort of draw the line in the sand there. But I think it's reasonable to expect that they're going to draw some sort of attention, whether it's inside out of restaurant, outside the restaurant, outside their homes, outside the, the Supreme Court steps, what have you. And then with regard to Justice Thomas, I mean, I would say I think it's a move on um, effort, and I don't think it's necessarily the right way to address it. I think the basis or the alleged basis for seeking, um, you know, the impeachment would be his failure to recuse himself um, in connection with the January 6th. Uh, debacle. Um, But I don't think given where we are as a country right now, that moving for his impeachment is necessarily going to help try to bring people together in what has become an incredibly divided country. Well, look, I mean, I think those are good points, but 
I kind of disagree, and we'll let David in on this. I, I disagree with the idea that as a Supreme Court justice, you should expect that a decision, no matter how controversial it is and maybe unpopular among some circles, should result in you being confronted in a restaurant and more importantly, at your home, right? I mean, these days, unfortunately, judges' addresses are available, as we've seen from people protesting. And in fact, one person uh, has been uh, arrested, as we've covered before, of attempted assassination outside of justice's home. So we've seen unfortunate examples of judges' families being killed. We saw one in Chicago years ago with a federal court judge. And of course, we saw the recent example with the judge's son uh, who was killed and, and, uh, and the husband was shot. So I think you got to draw the line. I mean, Rich, you just, I mean, Rich, I said that safety of a judge or justice is not, I mean, that's not negotiable. What I did say is that people are going to react to these decisions. And when the justices outside of the court end up being very vocal, like a la Justice Thomas in some of the speeches he's made, he elicits reactions. And so, again, I'll repeat for all of our listeners, I'm not an advocate for endangering the lives of judges or anybody for that matter. Sussler, jump in. I hear you. Jump in, Sussler. So, you know, I, I think that that when people demonstrate in front of judges' houses, they they don't understand that judges aren't beholden to politics. They're be, they're supposed to be beholden to the law and the Constitution. So the protests should be of no avail. I think it's it's unfortunate that people are doing it. If they are doing so peacefully, they have the right to do it. But uh, you know, I agree. Judges, the safety of judges has been increasingly threatened and has to be protected. Um, it, it is utterly unacceptable that. The Supreme Court judges or justices or any other judges' lives be put in danger. That's number one. Number two, you know, for Thomas's impeachment, I'm no fan of Thomas, never have been, completely disagree with pretty much everything that's ever come out of his mouth. I think he should have recused himself and he should recuse himself in any January 6th related litigation. That being said, I, I'm opposed to any real attempt to impeach him. Um, even if he deserves to be off the court, and I'd love to have him off the court, I think impeachment is a very dangerous move, and it would be a very quick, slippery slope that would lead to very dangerous political tit-for-tat down the road, which we, we just can't tolerate as a country. You know, for Kavanaugh, protesters have no business going inside a restaurant. That's a private establishment. The restaurant has the right to keep them out. That's not a First Amendment issue. It is on the street. And again, I'm no fan of Kavanaugh. And, and he does bring this stuff on himself. Um, you talk about right to privacy and the penumbra. If you look at the logic of the court's majority opinion, and especially of Thomas's concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, drawn to its logical conclusion, there is no such thing as a right to privacy. The penumbra does not exist. It's not written in the Constitution. And that's a perfect example of what's wrong with the originalist and textualist uh, movement among jurists. And perhaps along that point, uh, Justice Thomas will have to divorce his his wife, right? If you can't well, uh, enjoy, yeah, enjoy the freedom. Yeah. And if you can't enjoy the freedom of interracial marriage, then uh, he should get divorced. So it sounds like uh, we've established that there is a right to stake, Joe. So we could all we could all sleep better under the blanket of the constitutional protection to eat beef. 
Yeah, let's let's just go ahead and move on to a more serious conflict, and that is the cookie drama, Tina, of two gourmet dessert companies fighting over a similar logo. Yeah, Joe. So this past May, Utah gourmet cookie company Crumble, I like that name as a trademark lawyer, sued competitors Crave and Dirty Dough and is seeking trouble damages for what it alleges are various intellectual property related infringements, including, including what they allege are confusingly similar logos, websites, and other marketing material. So the lawsuit claims that with respect to Dirty Dough, um, that Dirty Dough copied recipes and that Dirty Dough's founder's brother um, was a former Crumble employee, which they said was important for purposes of establishing access to things such as the recipes. Apparently, Dirty Dough's founder was a process engineer at Crumble for a few months, got access to not just recipes, but methods of doing business and formulas, as well as the branding identity. Um, apparently, um, another co-founder applied to become a franchisee and was interviewed, but ultimately not hired, and then opened up Dirty Dough shortly thereafter. Dirty Dough um, denies any allegations of wrongdoing. With respect to Crave, the lawsuit claims that Crave's founder also applied to become a franchisee, and therefore that he must have also been aware, not just of Crumble, but the trade dress and other materials and recipes and things like that that went into Crumble's business. So what's interesting is um, there is some side-by-side of some of the materials that are at issue here, including some of the logos, pictures of the cookies, cookie designs, and and so forth. Um, And I have to say that while I see some arguable similarities Um, especially with respect to some of the packaging, um, it's really kind of tough to prove these cases, especially when you start talking about things like recipes and food shapes and presentation of food and trade dress. Um, Over my many years of practicing, I've handled a lot of lawsuits and allegations of infringement like this. I've worked with a lot of franchise companies over the years. And from a straight up intellectual property perspective, a lot of these things are very tough to prove, which is why it's really important to have other contractual um, belts and suspenders in place, such as confidentiality agreements, um, employment agreements, and to the extent you become a franchisee, having a franchise agreement that tells you what you can and cannot do in connection with trade dress and other materials that you get as a franchisee and what you have to do once or if, if and when you're terminated or you decide to leave the franchise. So this was an interesting case, Rich. Um, you know, I think there's some things that are a bit similar, but I, I think a number of these, they're, it's hard to protect them. Yeah, I mean, listen, they're, they're alleging that some of the similarities are like a cookie, you know, the cookie logo with a bite, uh, the long boxes and the way they present it. But in terms of the like recipe, I love a cookie. Like no one loves a chunk of cookie more than me. There's only so many ways to do a cookie, right? I mean, you know, there's like, there's a company that shoots the, like, that has a a center with like, you know, filling. That's one innovation. But at the end of the day, it's like, there's only so many innovations you can have in the cookie business. And if you're going to allege that someone is copying your recipe, then it seems like an uphill battle to your point, right? And uh, I think they're going to have a tough time here. Um, of course, you know, it's a, it's a classic also David versus Goliath. In fact, the, the dirty dough 
uh, CEO or founder said that this is an example of a billion dollar company picking on a, a startup. Um, Corey, uh, I don't know if uh, if your kids enjoy cookies or if you do. I, I imagine you do. Who doesn't love? It's impossible not to love cookies. But um, are, would you be confused by these two different uh, cookies? Oh, I looked at the pictures and I thought, well, the, the, you know, the, the print is just a little bit spread out. There are very big similarities. But, you know, I quickly reverted to the fact that businesses thrive on competition in the market. And just because you're the first to the market doesn't mean you get to tell everybody else to sit down and and control everything. So, you know, I was a little confused, economically speaking, why they would want to block their competitors and what happened to the perception of uh, flattery is the best compliment, right? I mean, it, it was a little bit confusing to follow the lawsuit and talking to somebody like myself, you know, with that has their own brand and is not the first in their their niche market. It's a little bit concerning too to see how companies or brands are reacting to others trying to mar- enter enter into the market and and what we may have to hold ourselves up against and where we have to be careful with every little step we're doing. Um, I have a friend similar, an entrepreneur that was just served uh, some papers for copyright um, infringement. So it, it more so to me than the just this small sector. It was an eye opening perspective of how the market's changing and how protective people are getting with their market domination of probably going into a recession. So I think we're probably going to see more trends like this where people are forecasting, they're getting concerned, they're getting nervous, they're going to start bringing you know, the big guns out to, to make sure that their, their corners stronghold for them. Dave, uh, I know you got a quick, uh, a quick response on this one that maybe could be summarized in a couple of words. Um, well... Tina's the expert. <laughs> uh, I, I, look, I look at these pictures and, and, and I know, uh, having learned from Tina over the years, that from a trademark perspective, this is, it's so technical and subjective. And I think that there'd be a hard time proving infringement here. I think the real issue, if, it, if it's true, that the real issue is more on the employment law side. If these are former employees who stole intellectual property, stole recipes and stole customer lists and stole package designs. Um, uh, that's, that's a, that's a potential real legal issue that I think could be more successful than the trademark claims. Shout out to insomnia cookies that stole my heart at Illinois state university. And it sounds like their logo is a lot like the one you're talking about right now with a bite taken out of it, but it Looks like a crescent moon, and it's very, very cool. Uh, let's move on to a different addiction like Starbucks and taking that to a whole nother level. A few coffee shops are closing, Tina, because of some riffraff and just uh, tough things going on around them. Yeah, so news broke earlier this week that Starbucks is closing 16 of its store locations nationwide. And these closures are due to reports from store managers of a surge in drug use thefts and assaults that are happening either inside the Starbucks restaurants or stores and or within the immediate vicinity. Um, And this is really chalked up in large part to an increase in crime in certain areas. These stores are in Seattle, Los Angeles, Portland, Philadelphia, and D.C., Um, The crime statistics, as many of our listeners will recognize in a number of these cities, has reached an all-time or near all-time high 
And Starbucks says as a precautionary safety measure, it's closing these stores and it's going to reassign its employees from these stores to other nearby locations. Apparently, one of the main issues that the stores have been having with respect to safety is um, linked to what has historically been open and free access to their bathrooms. It's company policy um, to give free access to bathrooms to the public. And store managers now have the discretion to deny free access to these bathrooms if they think they need to do so um, as a precautionary measure. Managers are also able to adjust their hours of operation and rearrange seating layouts to address employee safety concerns. Given that there are nearly 9,000 locations for Starbucks across North America, these closures are a mere drop in the bucket and seem to be a pretty wise corporate decision to try to ensure the safety of the employees as well as customers. And what's interesting is that this is all happening against the backdrop of Starbucks workers at more than 130 locations nationwide voting to unionize, and others are in the process of of doing so, Rich. Yeah, I mean, until now, Tina, I thought that the biggest crime going on at Starbucks was charging $8 for a venti. (laughs) Hang on, let me do that again. Make sure this thing is on, Joe. I thought the biggest crime now... Dad joke, little dad joke going on. Um, Seinfeld, yeah. Um, Yeah, you know what's interesting when you think about it, Tina, is that uh, it's kind of like chicken or egg. Like, does a coffee shop like Starbucks attract uh, what Joe used the legal definition of riffraff? I believe Uh, a very Joe Biden-like term, by the way. Um, uh, You know, does that attract uh, people that? commit crimes or does shutting it down? I mean, what effect does shutting down a vibrant uh, coffee shop in a community have that won't result in great things either. Right. I mean, the lack of uh, uh, traffic and uh, maybe squatters um, and the decreased economic effect of shutting down a Starbucks that can't help either. So I think it's more of a sign of sort of, you know, the overall crime issue we're having in many societies, but I don't, in many, uh, um, communities, I should say. Uh, But I don't think closing these uh, stores down, much like closing a lot of Walgreens, for example, we saw that in San Francisco, we've covered that. That hasn't helped too much. So who knows? I mean, it's worth a shot, but uh, the opposite effect could could happen. David, uh, Corey, what are your thoughts on on these? And do you enjoy the the Starbucks? What's your favorite drink at Starbucks? Go ahead, Corey. Um, I'm going to take a skinny latte, a cold or hot, depending on the time of year. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, we here at S1 really thrive on our culture, right? So when I heard the story, I immediately went away from the legal side of it into the culture side. And and what do we want to promote to our employees? What are they promoting as far as safety and concern? Um, but, you know, then quickly reminded too that this is also a, a high time of unionized companies, you know, companies starting to unionize in different states and different locations. And is this more of a response to that than than some of the safety concerns and measures within these cities. I mean, living in Philadelphia, there is no doubt what's going on here right now. And and it's definitely prevalent, but the timing of the two seems relatively awkward. Yeah, it's a really good point. And David, um, you know, yesterday, uh, an alderman who represents here in Chicago, an alderman who represents part of River North, which is a very busy part of of our city, a lot of bars and restaurants proposed that uh, bars 
who have licenses, uh, allowing them to remain open after 1 a.m., uh, that those licenses should be revoked. Just a couple of days ago in Chicago, we saw a shooting. Uh, three people were shot outside a, a bar called Snickers in, in River North at like 2 a.m. Um, so, you know, safety of customers is important. Safety of employees is also incredibly important. And I, one of the reasons, as Tina mentioned, to shut down these Starbucks is to not have employees of Starbucks faced with the risk associated with some of these crimes that, are, that we're seeing. So, you know what, I think Corey makes a really good point that some of these closings could be in reaction to the unionization drive. I don't know. You know, good companies, legitimate companies, safety of their employees is paramount. So if there really is a, a, a legitimate crime threat, that might be a good reason to shut down a store. Um, if it's if the store is losing money, especially if it's losing money because of crime, that's a legitimate reason to shut down the store. If that's not true, and I can't help but wonder, well, are, are, is is it a racially motivated decision? If that's what it is, that's that's bad. And you know, this bathroom decision, giving giving the managers discretion now to to allow or deny access to the to the restrooms, that's going to reopen a can of worms that. Starbucks had tried to close. Um, I forget what it was. Three, four years ago, they had some problems of, of what amounted to racial profiling and denying access to the restrooms. So I, I think that's a that's a bad move by the company. But it, you know, it's a difficult decision because there's no doubt violence is increasing in certain neighborhoods that didn't used to have violence in big cities. Apparently, sleep is absent during Love is Blind. A former contestant is now suing the Netflix producers of the show, Tina. Yeah, so Joe, last month, Jeremy Hartwell, who was a season two contestant on Love is Blind, filed a proposed class action, making a bunch of allegations about the show, including that the show forced contestants to work in a drunk, starved, sleep-deprived, and underpaid state. Hartwell's lawyer, Chantal Payton, said that the show intentionally underpays cast members and deprives them of food, water, and sleep and gives them essentially only alcohol to drink and not regular water and cuts off their access to the outside world, making cast members not only hungry for social connections, but also puts them in a mental state where they're likely to explode. She claims that there's also a liquidated damages clause requiring contestants to agree that if they leave the show before the filming was, was done, that they would be actually penalized um, and required to pay $50,000, which depending on who the contestant is, could be as much as 50 times more than what they would be making. The allegations also include that cast members up to a day, seven a week, and that would end up having them making less than minimum wage in Los Angeles. I mean, the the nature of the allegations go way beyond this. I mean, this is just very high level um, what some of the allegations were. There's also allegations of deprivation of people's lunch and rest breaks saying that they were actually locked out of their rooms because their keys would be confiscated until um, the crew would give their give the keys back to the various cast members. 
Um, and they're saying that the whole purpose behind these working conditions is to elicit a rational behavior for entertainment value. So Kinetic Content, which is the producer of the show, is fighting back and said that they think that this may just be a case of sour grapes because the plaintiff's involvement on the show was for less than one week and that he failed to connect with anybody else on the show, which may be the reason why he's no longer on the show. And they claim that these allegations are meritless, Rich. Yeah, let me just get this straight so I could understand it legally. So uh, a reality show put a bunch of people together and wanted them to uh, suffer and th thought that would result in some interesting uh, drama on the show. Wow. What a revelation. Never heard that before. <laughs> That's reality TV is the, what I would my, my opening and closing argument to the jury. Right. I mean, what do you think you're signing up for? You're not an actor. You don't have the benefits of, um, you know, the show doesn't get the benefits of your acting skill. It's a reality show. So, of course, you're going to be sleep deprived. By the way, you know who are sleep deprived? Professional actors also. That's the nature of these shows. They, they tape for 16 or 18 hours a day. So it seems like a little bit of whining. I mean, obviously, you know, these producers don't want to violate uh, labor laws and minimum wage requirements. But you know, uh, there's contracts and uh, know what you sign up for is my advice to them before they uh, before they sign up. But, yeah, you're not going to get, you know, uh, perfect working conditions in reality TV. That's what makes it watchable to some extent. I've never seen Love is Blind, Corey, but I know it's a, an extremely popular show. I can't say I have seen it either, although I don't know that I've missed a season of The Bachelorette. So I feel like I can still give my expert opinion here. Um, which brings me to my biggest point, you know, maybe taking the legal side out, out of it. We've all watched this for 20, 25 years. We know what happens as a responsible adult going into an engagement. I think it, it's on us to, like you said, read the contract, understand what we're getting ourselves into. But we can also make some pretty strong correlations as to what's going to happen based on the last 20 to 25 years. Um, but I think that also opens the doors for people to understand where gamemanship like this can happen because if you're not the contestant, you can probably get a pretty big name from drawing a lawsuit of all the things you didn't know were going to happen within your contract. David, do you agree with me and all your experience of watching Bachelorette? I've never seen Bachelorette. No, you're more of a Bachelor in Paradise kind of guy? Uh, no comment. Fifth Amendment. <laughs> David's more of a, uh, he's like an OG. He's a, he's a strict, a strict constructionist. He likes more of a Joe Millionaire or a, uh, or some of the other early. Remember Joe Millionaire? That was a whole controversy too. No, I, that I was can't early. say. That was days. the early days of reality TV. We used to watch uh, Trump, remember? Yes. We, we watched the first couple of seasons of The Apprentice. Yes. That's where it all began. It is. Well, it wouldn't be a legal grab bag without at least three food references on lawsuits. So let's get to the subway drama. And apparently the sandwich company that eats fresh is uh, catching some heat about selling some false tuna, Rich. Yeah, we love on, on Legal Face of a good uh, uh, food fight, right? Uh, uh, legally. And we've covered this story before. I mean, someone basically is suing Subway saying that their tuna is not tuna, that it should be 100% tuna and it's not. Therefore, I am damaged to the tune of millions and millions of dollars. That's why I emigrated to this country uh, from Canada oh so many years ago, Tina, to avail myself of the wonderful American legal system that allows someone to sue 
Subway because it's not 100% tuna. Um, yeah, of course, tuna, uh, of course, tuna. Of course, Subway uh, has responded by saying that it's 100% tuna, that it's caught in the uh, in the waters. Uh, uh, 100% wild-caught skipjack tuna as regulated by the FDA. The news here that we're covering is uh, a federal court said that this California resident can proceed with their lawsuit, so at least survived a motion to dismiss. It'll presumably go to the jury. We'll let the jury decide. I, I imagine Tito, the jury would want to taste the tuna and decide somewhat for themselves. Not that your average uh, juror could has the palate skills to determine whether it's 100% tuna, but that's what the jury might want to do. Well, I can tell you based on the description that I heard of this tuna, I don't ever want to try it. But obviously, that depends on whether the information is accurate or not. At the end of the day, it's really very fact-driven, right? So there are some accounts that it is actually a combination of different types of tuna, maybe at various points during the production process. And then there were other accounts that there's little to any tuna at all, that it actually may be meat-related products. And so ultimately, if this case actually goes forward and doesn't settle or otherwise get um, disposed of, I think that's going to be a critical question. And then also the regulatory overlay with respect to the FDA and what those regulations are when you are making claims about what a food is, making sure, you know, juxtaposing that with what the actual food content was in these sandwiches. Hey, again, um, that's a really uh, interesting point. But but David and Corey, um, again, my very learned uh, legal argument to a jury if I was defending Subway in this case, uh, and it could work for both opening and closing, would be, it's Subway. I don't know, newsflash. You're paying three bucks for a sandwich. What do you expect? Like five bucks, $5 foot. Well, you're getting a foot long, Joe. I, I'm, a, I'm a six inch. A six inch oh, oh, uh, sorry, sorry. But like, you know, listen, we all enjoy probably some raw tuna. I love raw tuna. That's expensive crap. Imagine... Uh, you know, that's not quite what you're eating when you're getting the, the two ninety nine six incher at uh, at Subway, David. So what do you think? But it, I think at this point in time, kind of like, you know, reality contestants, you know what you're getting when you're going to fast food. It's not the highest quality right. food. Um, it's highly, highly processed. There's no surprise. I think similarly to the love is blind story in this, you've got overreaching uh, money-grubbing plaintiff's lawyers who are not really advancing any positive cause for society here by bringing these lawsuits. They just see dollar signs. Uh, and you've got money-grubbing plaintiffs who see dollar signs. They're, but on the contrary is there are possible, if the facts are, as Tina said, if the facts are true, that it's not really tuna. It, let's say it's it's and it, it, it's beef, for example, and you are selling it to people who don't eat meat for religious reasons or health reasons. It's a problem. And there could be regulatory issues, FDA issues. So there's a potential if the facts are there. But I agree is it's Subway. This is what the, the thousandth lawsuit brought against Subway for, you know, having having their bread be half an inch too short. Um uh, I, I find this kind of litigation for the hold, most part offensive. Hold the phone, hold the phone. Why don't they just feed the fish mayo? 
Yeah, that's a good question. The sandwich is more mayo than anything. That that's a reference to a classic uh, night shift from like '82, where Michael Keaton has that idea to Henry Winkler. I didn't, says, I didn't see that one. Yeah, one thing feed the mayo into the. It's all. It is all mayo. Rich, Rich is ripping out the Seinfeld jokes, the Kramer ideas, uh, all over it. Though. All four characters in a moment, and uh, I apologize, Rich, for taking you as a uh, foot long sandwich guy. I forgot you had standards, and you get a six inch sandwich from Subway. <laughs> unlike the rest of us. Uh, typically, I get my legal content solely from the Legal Face-Off podcast, but Collider uh, Collider has ranked the 10 best legal dramas. Collider or Collider? Who knows? Uh, yeah, I mean, I just stumbled upon an article that I thought was a fun way to end, and it's talking about the, uh, what, season two, maybe, of The Lincoln Lawyer, which I haven't seen. I like the movie The Lincoln Lawyer, starring uh, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, but it ranked, or maybe I'm not sure ranked it. It just listed the ten best legal dramas. So I'm gonna, we'll just play a little game, and uh, I'm gonna throw out a uh, a drama that's on the list, and give me a uh, a legal thumbs up or a legal thumbs down, meaning how accurate does this movie portray the legal life? And Corey, you're not a lawyer, but you deal with lawyers every day, so you're in on this. All right, you ready? Better call Saul, which ran. Now I think it's last season, right? Uh, who says thumbs up, meaning legally accurate, or thumbs down, meaning very inaccurate? Go. Now is the time to raise your thumbs. Accurate, mid- middle ground. Tina's still considering it. I don't watch it, Rich. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'll save you time. I've never seen any of these shows. All right, so that's a, uh, a legally accurate. Uh, the Good Fight. No. David's already taken himself out of the game. Tina, no. Corey, the worst game ever. Joe, all right. How about uh, the show How to Get Away with Murder? Anyone seen that one? No. Epic fail on the game. All right. L.A. Law, I know you've seen the day. Even though it's on the list, I know you. <laughs> that one. Is Corey's never Great show. Great show. Completely unrealistic as oh, far as the practice of law. I thought that was a... Uh, I thought that was the genesis of the Sussler Martini relationship modeled on the uh what was the couple's name again? No, no, no. I mean no, that was way I mean LA Law was way before I knew David. I mean, at the time that David and I met, you had Law and Order, which I do consider a, a legal show. I mean, there's the law and then there's the order. Not and accurate, also though. Allie McBeal and then the practice as well. None the of practice on this though. list. Never saw it. Listen. None of these shows are accurate. Of course, you know, those are all TV shows. But if you want accuracy, movies, The Verdict. Um, and I, I think I was in high school when The Verdict came out with Paul Newman. Great movie. And, and my father was a lawyer. And I remember my father telling me that everything that happened to Paul Newman in that movie had happened to him, not all in one case, but at one point or another over his career. And now I've been practicing long enough that I've seen a lot of the things that have happened in there in my career as well. And so great that movie. actually, I think great movie, very accurate. Good performance. Corey, favorite uh, legal TV show of all time. Well, so growing up, I put a lot of weight and premise on one particular show as to my education on and that would be Night Court. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a great show. Which, which is back, by the way. It's back. Great news. Also, your list made me feel like I live under a rock. So thank you for... 
Yeah, you're going to have to speed. The best show on that list is actually Goliath. Goliath is a great show, Billy Bob Thornton. Um, we'll end off, of course, because we have the benefit of Davis Hustler, noted Springsteen expert, as I am, as Tina is, really, to some extent, maybe a little bit less than us, but a huge Springsteen fan. We just are coming off the uh, announcement of, finally, after five years, Bruce Springsteen touring the world, starting off in the U.S. in February, and then uh, hitting up Europe and then coming back. Uh, unfortunately, Chicago is not on that list. Shocking. Uh, David is... It'll be on the list in, in the return engagement starting in August. Yeah, you feel confident about that. I hope so. I feel confident about that. I'll, I'll be adding yeah. uh, at least 17 shows to my uh, growing list of Springsteen. Stop uh, bragging, Rich. Uh-huh. <laughs> Corey, uh, Springsteen? I'm from Philadelphia. Can I say no? Exactly. You cannot. All right. Well, Joe, uh, you can play us off, sing us off with some Bruce on that. And uh, speaking of branding, I got to give a plug to my other organization, Surmo, our new hats. Corey is on our, Corey is a member. There you go. Joe, favorite favorite Springsteen song. Go, give it up. Uh, Merry Christmas, baby. Good one. It's an excellent one. Yeah, how about, how, about a, how about a legal face-off uh, field trip to a Springsteen concert? That's, Let's go. That's one I would, I would be. Tina, you take care of this one. I'll get the next tour. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag and Legal Face-Off podcast. Big thanks to our earlier guests of Representative Kathleen Willis, Rebecca Glenberg, and Jameson Firestone. Big thanks to our Legal Grab Bag guests as well, of David and Corey. To our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Joey Kostopoulos, and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Face-Off podcast. If you enjoy it, please give us five stars. Just give us five stars anyway, too. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. And we got to thank, by the way, speaking of Joey Christopoulos, we got to thank him as he uh, departs our show. Uh, record turnover here on Legal Face-Off, as always. But yet another producer who's moving on uh, to bigger and better things. We want to really thank Joey for all his help. He's a great producer, great friend of the show. We love you, Joey. We'll He'll be back. You. He'll be back on for sure as a guest. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...